Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, today we're talking about big games, talking about expansive games, games that take up a lot of room on your table, but aren't heavy games. They're approachable. They're easy to get into. They just got a lot going on. And we're talking to a master, in my opinion, of these expansive games, Tim Eisner. Tim, welcome to the show. Hello, Gabe. Well, nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man, really excited to have you. You know, we were just talking a moment ago before we hit record, and you've got some really cool things going on in a lot of your games, games you've already designed, games that are coming out soon, games hitting Kickstarter, and you have just done a really good job of making giant games, games that just take up your whole table, but at the same time aren't that difficult to learn, aren't that difficult to get into, they're very approachable, so I'm excited to just kind of hear your design process, how you put these games together, all the working parts and make them, making them work together. But before we get into that, who are you? How'd you get in game design? All that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, my name's Tim Eisner. I uh, live in Portland, Oregon on the West Coast. And I've been doing game design since about 2013, 2012. I started getting into it a little bit. I was doing uh, sort of making jewelry and selling it at the local market here in Portland and got a little burnt out on that and was looking for something else that I would like to do, sort of my own business. And um I was playing a lot of board games at the time with friends and was like, well, I looks like you could make your own. And it was the time when Kickstarter was starting to ramp up with games. And so I was like, you know, I, if I, at least I'll have fun doing this. You know, I don't know if I'll make any money or be able to support myself long term, but uh, was able to get into it and do it a little bit and uh, sort of did my first Kickstarter for March of the Ants back in 2014. And the rest sort of just kept rolling from there, you know. Yeah, it seems like you've done uh, pretty well to go from jewelry making into uh, making a game or two that's done okay on Kickstarter. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Yeah, and that's been a, you know, a combination of, you know, the hard work sticking with it and then also, you know, making some great uh, meet some great partners and working with, you know, good people who are, you know, able to help me uh, along the way. So that's one of the key things before we get into, you know, nitty-gritty details is just finding good collaborators who you like like to work with you know whether that's other designers or producers publishers people who are able to you know fill in those areas where you're not the, the strong suits yeah absolutely and i think your games really benefit from that from people like james hudson and then like mr cuttington and just people coming together to make an incredible world for your game the art for your game the business side for your game i think your, your games especially have benefited from just amazing people coming alongside you to to kind of make a giant production that's what a lot of people don't understand if you go to Kickstarter, you're not making a game, you're making a product. And so understanding all the different aspects that go into making a great product, it's more than just game design. Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, and I'm with those these big games, a lot of ones we're going to talk about. I am one part of it. And the design's really important as it's a game. But it's also, yeah, so many people coming together and so many people meshing of skills and and getting the, you know, the right team and the right people together and working to make it happen. Yeah, for sure. All right, so let's get into the topic at hand. Let's, first of all, let's get a good little definition of exactly what we're talking about. Because, I mean, there are lots of big games out there. You know, Vital Lacerda, if I'm saying his name correctly, he makes really big, expansive games. But his games are super heavy, got a lot going on. They'll kind of burn your brain. 
your games aren't like that. So if you were going to define kind of the games that you make or your your kind of design style when it comes to these big games, what's a good little like working definition? Like what, what would you tell people as far as these big games go to kind of get them to understand what you're designing? Um, I think for me, I would describe it as like a, a big game that's, you know, got strategy, but is it's very immersive in the theme and, you know, is I try and keep it approachable and intuitive in the gameplay. So there, there might be a lot of moving parts and different things, but I really try and mesh them together. That's not a short, concise definition, but, you know, that's sort of like how I think of it is like, okay, it's big, but I'm not, tr- I, I try and keep it in the sort of mid range where it's, it's still approachable to a the majority of the audience. Definitely. And I want to get into how you do that in just a minute. But before that, why do you think so many people are drawn to these games? These games do very well on Kickstarter. You know, they, they bring in a lot of backers. They do well in the marketplace. Why do you think so many people are drawn to this you know, type of game? that's big on the table, but not necessarily, you know, heavy as far as the complexity. Um, you know, I think it's, you know, one, we with, we really like games that are immersive. I think people like a story or like getting into a world and really getting, you know, feeling that experience and feeling like they're part of uh, a, a narrative or really able to engage with it. And so partly having so many, you know, uh, such a big board or big, a lot of different components and pieces is it it lets players get into it more and be excited about visiting lots of different locations on the map or playing as a, a wide variety of different characters that are available. So, so I think that really helps. And, you know, like we said before, like having really good artists who can bring that world to life and, you know, supporting it with narrative as well is like really, I think captivates people. Yeah, for sure. Well, cool, man. I want to do like a quick breakdown of these three games that are, that kind of really fit the, this, this conversation, and that's March of the Ants, Tidal Blades, and then Wonderland's War. So let's kind of go through one by one, and just tell me about tell me about the game, and then like let's talk through your design process, kind of how you went start to finish. Because something I get a lot of emails about is people where they just don't know where to start. How in the world do I design a game? You know, especially a game that they have in my head that's kind of big in scope. Where do I even begin? And so tell me about March of the Ants, kind of how it came to be, and then let's get into some of the design. Yeah, definitely. So March of the Ants was an interesting uh, process. It was right when I was starting to get into game design and I'd actually started working on a game called Little Pig, which eventually became Grim Forest independently. Um, and that was happening. But then I was looking for uh, some a collaborator to work with. And one of my good friends, Ryan Swisher in town here had done a lot of, uh, he'd done an art show about ants and had done a bunch of research into what ants, you know, different species of ants and all the all the fantastic things they do. And so when I was trying to pitch him to like team up with me to make some games, I was like, oh, we could do like an ant game that's sort of like a civilization game because ants have this, you know, a pretty advanced sort of civilization structure of like they do some farming and agriculture and things like that. So we, we use that as a basis as sort of this knowledge that he'd uncovered, which sort of helped build the world of ants. We were like, oh, we can sort of make this, you know, civilization game or a 4X game. But instead of like set in space with these like alien species, we're going to do it on, you know, just in the meadow with ants. And so um, and with that one for the start of it. So that was sort of the genesis of the idea. And then Ryan actually came to me a few months later and was like, here, here's a basic structure and had a very rough outline that was largely inspired by the game Eclipse, which is um, which is a 4X game that's a big sort of expansive space game. And from the start, our one of the things that really helped was we set a few goals for our game, like some game design goals of we want to keep the game um, 
have a quick setup. So we want to be able to set up in five minutes, which, you know, as in comparison to Eclipse or some of the other big sprawling games, um, they take like, you know, half an hour to set up. And so we were like, we wanted to set up quickly and we wanted to play in like an hour and a half. So we had these, and we also said that set the goal of like, we want to be able to teach like our parents this game, even though they're not, you know, heavy gamers, they play like cards and stuff like that. We want to be able to share this with more people. So we had, we had clear goals from the beginning, which really helped us in the process. Um, and so we took that basic structure that Ryan um, had sort of laid out and, it was, you know, it was actually playable the first time. So we got through, part, you know, part of a game and then, you know, just like many other designers taking notes and then making the revisions that are needed, getting it back on the table again. And then when I, when I think about design, I usually do sort of internal playtesting with just me and a couple other designers or friends who are close and then gradually widen the scope as the game gets more polished and more able to, uh, you know, to be approachable by by players who are not familiar with the design or not willing to you know able to sit in on just like oh we're figuring this out and we're negotiating the rules as we go so yeah we did that and then you know we kept hammering on the design it was for about a year um i think we went through like seven or eight very distinct versions it started out with like nine rounds of gameplay and at, at the end got down to four and we you know we introduced different cards and different, you know, ants and a lot of different things. But having those design goals from the get-go was really helpful for us for that game because having it limited to a five-minute setup, we a few times during the game, we were design process, we were like, oh, we want to introduce, um, we, we could make another deck that does this thing. And we're like, well, if there's two decks or three decks or four decks, that's going to be a lot more shuffling, a lot more setup and just make the game you know, more complex in general. And so we, we kept coming back to like, okay, well, let's make it, how can we make, make it do what we want, but in this structure. And so we ended up just keeping it with to one deck. So all the different card types are all in one deck and that posed some problems of how do you, um, you know, how do you give players the options or the choice to find the cards they need if it's all in one deck? And we, you know, had some, you know, abilities to cycle through cards and things like that that we added and made sort of mainstays of the game. So, um, so yeah, that's my, is there any other specifics on that one that you are curious about or? Well, yeah, there's actually a lot and we'll get into them kind of as we go. Um, but first of all, I want to, I want to just point out something you, you did for that game. And I'm assuming you do for all, if not, you know, a lot, if not all your games, and that's making goals before you even really get into it. Is that something you always do before you get into a design? That is something I really try and do. And it's not, I, I think I had the most success with that game. Um, but I definitely try to do that, um, for other games or some games are more of a, a you know, big bigger collaborative projects. So they're goals that are created with a, a wider team, you know? And so I, but I think that's super helpful and it's really great. I've taught uh, some just intro to game design class at the local community college here. And that's one of the things I stress to, you know, my students is be like, Hey, just make a, you know, make a, make two or three goals that are not, you know, like I want it to be this type of game, but you know, clearly in your mind, what it's, what do you want it to be and help it like get some shape and solidity from the get go. 
Yeah, for sure. I think it was Gil Hova who came on the show a while back, and he said he likes to make like a mission statement for the game. Just kind of write out a little half sentence about what the game, what he wants the game to be. And I think that's a cool way to go. I'm a big fan of kind of like your style, just making goals, just making some bullet points of saying, okay, I want to, like you said, the setup is five minutes. The game takes 45 minutes, definitely doesn't take longer than 60 minutes, all those things, because it gives me a wonderful filter that every time I want to make a decision or design choice or something like that, I just pass it to, through the filter of those goals and say, well, is this going to help me get closer or further away from the goal that I'm trying to accomplish? And I think it just makes the design process so much easier because it li- limits you. Instead of anything being possible, you know, only a certain number of, of options are possible to hit these goals. I think that's a really great way to, to begin. Definitely. And I think that's like one of the great things about game design. And one reason I love it is that anything's possible. You know, it's fun, this like unexplored map that you're like, oh, what, what if we do this? Oh, we could do this. But that's also, uh, you know, a, can be a downfall or a downside of it is you can sort of get lost in design sometimes and be like, oh, let's maybe we take it down this direction. Oh, maybe we go there. And so if you have some anchors to hold on to that can help pull you back in to make sure you're you're making the game that you originally set out to do and sort of one of the balances is you don't want to be totally beholden if something cool or new or unexpected comes up in a different direction you don't want to say oh i'm i'm just doing that you know i'm going to stick with where i am like with, i can't do that because of these goals but it gives you the, the structure to work within so i do think it's really helpful and a really nice sort of gives you an initial roadmap. For sure. All right, let's jump over to Title Blades. I want to get like a, a kind of a frame of these three big games that you've got. And then we'll kind of bounce around and talk about different things that were going on in each of them. Because some things are very similar. Th- some things are very different. So we can get some cool comparisons and contrast. But first, let's talk through these three. So the next one, Title Blades. Tell me about the genesis of that one, kind of how it came to be. It's a beautiful, beautiful game that I know is getting ready to deliver, or getting ready to uh, be manufactured right now. And people are just so excited, maybe a little bit too excited, some of them, uh, for the game. I've seen some comments online say, hey, summer down. But uh, yeah, tell me yeah. about that one and, and how it came to be. Yeah, so Title Blade's just a brief outline of the game. It's uh, set in this fantasy sort of water world uh, in the city of Naviri, which is this sort of city comprised of islands and floating habitations. And each player takes on the role of a young or an aspiring hero that is uh, is trying is competing in a tournament to become part of the Title Blades, which are the uh, the elite guard of that of that island. And so there's a threat from the the, the deeps of the the sea monsters, and they've been locked behind this fold, which is kind of this 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 uh, fold in space time that froze the monsters, but they're starting to come out. And so they need, the city needs more protection. Um, And so it's a, it's a got a sort of worker placement mechanics and then some dice rolling and sort of character building as you're building up your character by, uh, by attempting challenges and competing in the tournament. Um, And this one was really interesting. It, uh, so I did Grim Forest with uh, James Hudson and Druid City Games. Um, back in 2015 or 2016 and that worked really well and we we knew we really liked working together um and the mr cuttington were the artists for that as well and so after after that game james was like hey i want to do another project like let's do you know like there's a good team let's keep this keep this energy rolling and so he um he pitched us, you know, he's like, let's work on some games. And Mr. Cuttington was like, well, we want to do a game, but we'd really like to create our own world for it. We, they were really interested in having, doing something totally new since Grim Forest had been sort of um, 
you know, existing characters, existing storylines that we already had. I think they had a lot of fun illustrating it and did a wonderful job, but they were excited to like make something totally new and have this vision. And so, so it was a really cool game in that he sort of gave them the lead on the flavor and world creation. And so they took that, um, and created the, the sort of story and the outline for the world that, um, that became Naviri and sort of gave structure to the game design as well. So, um, and that one I designed so, with my, bro- Oh, go ahead. So, so basically they created an IP that then you made a game based on the IP that they had just immediately created. Is that right? Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And it was, um, you know, it was a sort of collaborative process too. They were, cause their IP was in creation and we were sort of doing the design sort of back and forth, you know, of, um, I, did the design with my brother Ben Eisner and um, we had sort of started, had a couple ideas of some structure or the type of game. We were excited, you know, about doing some worker placement and having some dice involved. And then they gave us the structure of the, um, the world. And so that influenced, we were like, Oh, well, if this is the world, then these kind of things will make sense. We want the action spaces to be grouped into different islands rather than just on one big board or one big thing. And like, Oh, each Island can have its own flavor and do its own special effect as well. And so it was a really, really cool and kind of magical process because they're awesome folks. And so we, we would do some things in the design and then be like, Hey, does this make sense in the world? And they were like, Oh yeah, this makes sense. We can incorporate this in this way or this, involves that way so it was a really neat um to make a design to an ip but then also have the ip sort of be fluid and being created at the same time yeah that's such an interesting process it's not typical at all but it's Mm -hmm. very very cool just kind of the way that you can do that and honestly i've done it a little bit with uh, the artist and graphic designer in in for my some of my games where you have an idea and then you'll throw it out to them and say hey how can we really get this across in the illustrations, in the way the cards are laid out, that kind of thing. So it all comes together. So it is collaborative, but this is a like next level <laughs> collaboration as far as that goes. And it's so cool how but again, here's the second game in a row where you kind of figured out what makes sense based on the world that you have, whether it's art, it's uh, ants and like kind of hierarchies and the way the ants work and all that, or whether it's this IP world that you're going in and saying, okay, what makes sense? And then you're translating that into game mechanics. Is that just kind of your natural way of doing things, or is that just always part of your process? I think that's kind of my natural way that I sort of gravitate to do things um, or that I like to do things and strive for, you know, it's not, it doesn't always come easily, but it is something that I think really helps as we've, you know, talked about a, a little bit before is like making things approachable. It's like, if it matches to the theme, if it makes sense within the world, it really can help you, um, you know, players attach to it. And also during the design process, if I'm like, Oh, what, what do we need here if I have this problem I'm trying to solve or something doesn't make sense? If I can go back to the theme and figure out like, oh, if I if I pull this in, you know, in this way, that's going to make sense thematically and also gives me a direction to go. So I think it's it's like we were talking about before with sort of the design goals. It's a similar sort of uh, anchor point or like roadmap that gives you some some more clear places you can go with the design rather than just being wide open. Definitely. All right, let's switch gears just a little bit. Let's talk about Wonderland's War. It's on Kickstarter right now. Uh, I don't know much about it. I've only seen pictures and different things. And so I'm excited to kind of tell me about that process, how it came to be, you know, where it's at. Yeah, Wonderland's War. It's very exciting. So um, there's another collaboration with uh, James Hudson and Druid City Games and Skybound Games. Um, And with this one, this was about the uh, same time as... um, 
as when Title Blades, we were first starting talking about it. James had also thought about, you know, like uh, wanting to do a Wonderlands, uh, Alice in Wonderland sort of themed game. And so he had uh, talked to the artist Manny, um, and he from who's done Dice Throne, and uh, had got some art from him, and it was really inspiring and seemed like it worked. But then with Title Blades, we kind of put it on the shelf for a while, and. Um, and so this game, the, the structure of the game is it's uh, been many years since Alice first visited Wonderland. She comes back to Wonderland and all the sort of wonder and silliness and frivolity that made Wonderland so special and different is gone. And it's sort of a more serious, somber place. And somehow like the the magic is, is being taken out of Wonderland. And so uh, all the the players play as different sort of lead characters in Wonderland. You can be Alice or the Mad Hatter, the Red Queen, and each of them's trying to fix Wonderland in their own vision, you know. So the Mad Hatter wants to throw enormous tea parties. He thinks that's going to bring it back to, to what it should be. The Red Queen wants to chop off everybody's heads. That's sort of the flavor thing. You're not actually, you know, doing that specifically in the game, but that's the, the story, narrative storyline. Um and in the game, you're you're assembling. There's some bag building, so you're you're drafting around the tea party. There's two phases. You're going around the tea party, um, collecting different allies that are in the form of chips. So you're putting them in your bag, similar to sort of Orleans or Quacks of Quedlinburg. And then there's a battle phase in the second half of the game, or the second phase of the game, where you um, go through the different regions of Wonderland and you you pull chips out of your bags to assemble your army strength and sort of compete to who, see who has the highest strength in the in the region. So it's a combination of of, of a couple of really fun mechanics that I've been wanting to work on or work with for a while and and pull them together. So, and that's been an, a cool process because we've. Um, the game we worked on with uh, uh, it's me and my brother Ben, and then also Ian Moss is one of the designers, and Jonathan Gilmore was designing with us for the first part of the game design, um, and he went and had some other projects that he had to focus on. But we've sort of continued building with that that structure that we had initially, and the game's interesting because we had a, a kind of different structure. It was more of a a worker placement game for a while with like a war half. And then it became, um, we, the word, it seemed like the two sides weren't gelling exactly. Like the worker placement to battle was, was cool and interesting, but we couldn't get that fully to work. And so we, uh, had a design retreat and we came up with, um, you know, doing some bag building or the drafting and bag building and then going into battle. And it sort of meshed the two sides a little bit uh, more organically and, you know, brought, you know, some more excitement to both the battle and the, the uh, drafting part. Awesome. Now all three of these games have tons of theme. They're just oozing theme in different ways. And so what's your advice as far as like getting the theme of, of a game to just really come to the forefront for it to be kind of obvious what, what things are going on thematically, what advice would you give people? Basically like what's your design process for getting the theme out and what would you tell others as far as how to do it? Um, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I think just keeping it in the forefront of your mind from early on and using it to guide the, the design of the mechanics and the structure of the game. So, um, you know, often I'll be inspired by a mechanic from playing a different a different game or play a few different games and be like, oh, that was a really cool like dice rolling mechanic they had there. I wonder if I could do something similar and that will grow and shift. But pretty early on when I'm um, working on a design, I like to 
to be like, okay, let's get a theme and figure out what this theme is and sort of help that guide and structure the most of the choices that I make from there, you know? So if I'm like, oh, cool, I know there's going to be these cards and these actions that are happening quickly, I want to try and identify, okay, what are those cards and how do they tie into the theme of like, you know, in March of the Ants, you're, you're building up, you're getting advancements for your sort of ant civilization. And it was like, oh, those can be evolutions and those can be parts of the different ant body that you're building up so that they, you know, and it's this natural representation. And from there, we were like, well, let's look at real life ants and ant species that are that are out there and we can draw inspiration and, and link them to those to those actual species. And that was really cool because we could then be like, oh, well, this species does this thing where it will there's some of them that will blow themselves up if they're being overrun by, you know, if their nests being invaded, they'll blow themselves up to protect the nest. And it's like, oh, well, we definitely got to use that for an ant. You know, we got to like, how can we make an ant ability or a card ability that reflects that? So, so I think just like, and, and thinking about those things, whenever you have choices to make of, you know, different abilities or effects that are going to be in the game is, you know, trying to go back to that reference material and be like, well, what would, you know, what makes sense for the Mad Hatter to do? Does he do things like, does he feel like he's doing things that are a little bit like mad and out of the normal and sort of like maybe a little self-destructive, but just wild and crazy, you know? And so trying to come up with abilities that match that. So, um, so in Wonderland's War, the Mad Hatter, there's, you have some madness chips that are in your bag that sort of make you lose your supporters and can make you have to, to leave a battle if you, you, you scare off all your supporters by being too mad but the Mad Hatter likes being mad. So the more madness chips he gets, he, some of his powers get more powerful and he gets bonuses from actually getting those madness chips out. So it's just a way to sort of like connect that the thematically into the narrative. Yeah, definitely. I think this is when you just really, you get into the source material as much as you can. And then you start thinking about, okay, what makes sense mechanically as far as, okay, this is how it is with ants in real life. Okay. How can we turn that into a game mechanism? Or this is how the, the story goes in Alice in Wonderland. How can we turn that into a game mechanism? It's just a really fun process. It's one of my favorite processes as far as the problem solving of game design. Is this, I feel like it's something you enjoy as well. Is this to like make up a lot of your, your time as far as your design? Definitely. Definitely. It's, it's one of the best, most fun processes. I, uh, when I was younger, I used to do a lot of theater, like improvised theater and like to do a lot of narrative storytelling. And so really this is a way in games that we're able to tell stories and to make them, you know, like really feel immersive and make it connected. And so I do, I do try and spend a lot of time like figuring out, Ooh, how does this fit in with this world or how does this world influence the design? And, you know, I think I've maybe said this before, but you know, it, it really helps players too. Like the more you can do that, the more players are able to latch on to the theme and say, oh, this this makes sense to me that these ants do this thing because that's a natural structure that ants have. Or that's a, you know, there's these different, different things like, oh, the Hatter likes madness. That's clear. It's right there in his name and it, it feels thematic. So it both makes the game more fun, but also makes it more approachable. Yeah, my favorite detail, a little thematic detail in March of the Ants is the wormhole. 
And so any anytime you have a tile with a, a worm coming out of a hole, you can t- basically teleport your ants to another tile with a worm coming out of a hole. And I just thought a wormhole, that's that's hilarious, especially you know basing it a little bit off of uh, Eclipse and being a space wormhole. I just love that. I love being able to find little details in games and then put those details in my own games. Do you have any favorites that you have that you've got little design elements, little thematic things you've put in? Uh, I mean, the wormholes is definitely up there. And that was uh, my design partner ryan swisher was the the genius behind that and that's was like kind of i think he had that in the first design actually he's like oh this is hilarious and like obviously it stayed in there um some other details i think are um you know with the red queen we obviously have some things where she chops off people's heads so when she she gets placed into a battle she'll knock off knock out some of their supporters right away and in the Wonderlands War, we've we've named a lot of the abilities that the characters have, sort of a- after their, you know, some maybe directly from the books, um, or you know, inspired by them. So that one of the characters you can play out is the Jabberwock, and so there's some, you know, uh, some of his abilities are named after the, you know, parts of the poem, like "Beware the Jabberwock," you know, and stuff like that. So it really just helps people like click into it, you know. One thing it makes me think about is like even from my earliest days of playing games of like playing Catan or Carcassonne, there was always like, when I'm playing games, I always think of puns or think of songs, you know, like, and like, I think a good game provides you those opportunities where players have something that they can grab onto or make jokes about or, um, and have fun with, you know, like, uh, in Grim Forest, there's, you're building houses and there you're building brick houses and inevitably, you know, almost every game somebody says like, she's a brick house, you know, and just like giving players some things that they're able to play with and have fun. So some of those you sort of build into the design and some just come, come across organically as they're like, um, as the players play it and, you know, make stuff up with the game. Yeah, absolutely. It's fun to put little Easter eggs in and just see what happens. Because again, it doesn't necessarily affect gameplay. It's just a fun way uh, to bring th- parts of the theme out. Now, one thing I've been working on lately is a lot of like sports games. And, and you uh-huh. gotta with sports, you gotta know what to simulate, what to abstract, you know, and kind of walk a fine balance between you know what you're actually gonna do versus what you're gonna just kind of gloss over. And so I feel like anytime you're designing a thematic game, you got to figure that out too. Like what, what's going to be the best as far as, you know, are, we're really going to focus on this, but this over here, we're going to abstract that out with a card, with a die roll, with one real quick thing, because for whatever reason. And so when you're working on games and you're trying to like figure out thematically what to do and all that, how do you know what to abstract, what to really focus on, you know, as far as that kind of thing? Yeah, that is a great question. Um, I think it, you know, some things are more, are a little more obvious, you know, it's like, I think I, you sort of as a, a large picture process, go through, look at the game and say, oh, what parts can we bring in really directly and like make, um, you know, make feel really thematic and make, you know, focus on in the gameplay. And then what parts do we want to sort of have be larger pictures that it's like the background or things that you're having. So you know, going back to the March the Ants, like having the evolutions that is directly based on real life ants was like, oh, this is a no brainer. This makes sense as soon as we have this structure that like this is a great way to bring in these, you know, scientific facts and bring in like details of ants into the game. And then some larger processes of like, you know, 
ants, you know, feeding and, and reproducing, we, we sort of abstract a bit more. It's like, oh, you get food and you have to feed your ants, but it's not a big detail. We're not breaking down the structure of that. Um, so I think it's partly being guided by what's fun, you know, what feels like is going to be the most fun for players. So like putting new evolutions on your ants is really exciting, but if you were breaking down the feeding structure, that's, that's interesting, but it's maybe not as fun of a feeling for players to, to engage with. So it's, so it's looking, I think looking for those points where players are going to get the most excited about those details of, Oh, I really want this to come out. So in, in Wonderland's war having like, Oh, these characters have these specific abilities that really feel like you're the red queen or really feel like you're the mad hatter. And so the more player, you know, that's really exciting where some other parts of like movement or the locations are not necessarily as detailed or, or, you know, cause you can't give everything the detail that it maybe deserves or that it could have. You have to really focus, like you said. So I think looking at like the main interaction with players and things that are like a little more personal to each player is, is sort of my baseline. Yeah, for sure. And I think this is another place where the goals really come back and, and can be helpful. For instance, with title blades, you know, you've got certain aspects of that game where the player will take their character and they will fight these monsters coming out of this this fold. And you could have very easily turned that into a little mini game, a little tactical combat mini game and, and do some different things. But that would have made the game take a lot longer, would have made downtime a lot longer for the other players. Like it would have had tons of drawbacks. And so even if it would have been a really cool thing to add, you know, it probably would have made the game worse overall. And so I think that's another thing to always think about as far as, so, so you, for that, you just abstracted out and made it a, a, a die, you know, some dice rolls as opposed to, you know, going, okay, I'm going to move my character here and he's going to hit for two damage. And then I take three damage. And so you kind of abstracted it out. I think that's another thing just to think about, like, what does this do to the game overall? Definitely. And I think having those, those goals is really helpful. And that's sort of one thing we, we, it was interesting with title blades that you mentioned that because we, we knew we wanted it focused on the um, the tournament of the for you know like people competing in the tournament and one of the things when James uh, first set up the project is he was like well let's do a title blades one and a title blades two and it's going to be a continuing sort of there's going to be at least a few games in this universe and so we knew the first one was going to be um, a sort of focused on the tournament and when they're becoming heroes and then future ones might be more where they're going out and like battling monsters and like a different structure of game um and so we in the design process we were like well we know the tournament's the main thing we want to focus on these challenges and have this dice mechanic for those and then we were like well let's bring in some monsters like we want there to be a threat or something you know monsters are exciting and fun we want those to be present in the game somewhat because they're happening but we didn't want them to be the main focus and so we sort of went back and forth at one point we had removed the monsters completely and been like well let's just focus on the challenges and then we were like well monsters are good we want those you know those help give another little another detail and are connected but bringing them back in we made them follow most of the same mechanics and structure as the challenges, but be, you know, a little more collaborative. They take multiple visits to be able to beat them. So players will work together to fight them. And so that sort of helped, you know, make the game more approachable. Like you said, it's not like adding in the, Oh, there's this whole other separate module that when you deal with monsters, you know, that you can explain in the same way of like, Oh, these are, you know, larger challenges that have a few special rules and effects and like work slightly differently, but have the overall same structure. Right. And that's another thing to think about. How is this going to add to the rule book? You know, if you're going to add this extra module, this extra way, you know, way the game works or plays, 
you know, are you going to have to add two or three more pages in the rule book? Because that's all, obviously another obstacle to getting the game to the table. It makes it less approachable. And so if you can abstract things out and make them similar to the other parts of the game, maybe with some tweaks, you know, maybe a rule is a little different. Maybe there's, you know, the way cards or dice works a little bit, a little bit different. But I feel like if you just make it similar to the other parts, then it makes the game a, a lot more streamlined. Definitely, definitely. And that's something I think about a lot. And that is like, one of, you know, like, is one of my major concerns as a game designer is like, okay, what's the rule book going to look like? How's that going to, how are people going to be able to interface with that? And is it going to be, are people going to take it out and then just like put it back in the box? Because they're like, I can't handle that rule book, you know? And so I think one of the really good things that I've done, especially with these larger games is do a lot of public playtesting and playtesting with people of all sort of varying, uh, you know, experience levels in games and, and, you know, just seeing when their eyes glaze over, figuring out how many rules to explain up front, what the structure of that introduction to the rules is. And like, if I'm explaining a rule, I explain everything and then things get forgotten. Like every game, I'm like, well, that rule either doesn't need to be exist, exist, or it needs to be, more prevalent or you know i need to tie it in thematically so it makes sense with the rest of the game so it's it's definitely something i think about a lot is you know how much is there how many rules and how long is the explanation going to take you know because even teaching title blades at conventions and you know doing demos it's like it takes a solid, you know, 10 minutes or maybe, you know, a little bit more to get through the, the basic structure of the game and cover all the different areas and all the different things that are going on. And sometimes, you know, people will be sitting down and be like, whoa, this seems like a lot. But once we get playing, it all sort of makes sense intuitively. And the choices you each player has on their turn are constrained enough that it it's not overly, like, uh, complex or you know, leads to like analysis paralysis or too much uh, focus on that. Absolutely. One of the things I love to do is just blind test the rule book without even playing the game. I'll, I'll give the, the rule book uh, to a friend who maybe is really into board games. They know a lot. And I'll give it to a person at a different time that has only played Uno or something, you know, very, very basic. And I'll basically just say, hey, go through here and see if you can teach me the game as the rules are written. You know, talk, tell me about the setup. Tell me about how it works. And I'll just take notes on all the things that they struggle with and all the things that they get wrong. And then and that helps me go back and then rewrite some rules or, or maybe add some things, add some clarifications, take some things out, move some things around just from blind testing the rule, but God, even actually having to play the game. And, and so I think that's something that, um, that people can do to, to help them through that process. That's really cool. Yeah. I don't, I haven't actually done that specifically. So I'm going to, I'm going to try that out. Um, well, I, what I have done is, you know, you know, give, do full blind play tests, but that takes a bit more time, a bit more commitment to get, you know, somebody to learn all from the, from, you know, the rule book and play the whole game which is important to do. But before that even is like, Oh, Hey, read this rule book and tell me how the game works and tell me how it's structured and just seeing, seeing that. So that's, that's cool. I'm going to check that out. Yeah, for sure. And it's really helped me moving things around is another thing. Cause they'll, they'll get confused about certain things. They'll go, wait, why, why does this work this way? And it's like, Oh, okay. I should have put this paragraph second instead of fifth, because that's going to be a more natural progression of how the brain works for, you know, what, what makes sense to, to people. And let's actually keep talking about that. We've said the phrase makes sense quite a few times. And I think that's something super important in, in gaming today. There's so many games coming out, constantly new, new games, constantly new games hitting the table. And so a lot of times people will only play a game one time before it goes back on the shelf, never to be played again or traded or sold. And so how important is it to have that first game 
that's played be be fun? And then what do you do to ensure that? How do you make sure the strategies are kind of obvious that they kind of emerge even from that first play or halfway through the first play so that people kind of get it so it makes sense, so it clicks? Like how important do you think that is? And then how in the world do you make it happen? I think it's of the utmost importance uh, for what the reasons you laid out. You know, I think I'm, I think, I don't know about, you know, all levels of gamers, but definitely the, you know, more, more dedicated game players who are often the people who teach games to other people and, you know, are really, you know, promoting games a lot is our people, they will often play a game once. And if it doesn't catch their fancy right away or doesn't make sense, or they get some rules wrong and if they get a bad play, they might, there's plenty of other games to pull off the next time. And, you know, I'm pretty guilty of this too. This year I've been trying to play games more than once, you know, play it at least three times to really check it out and get a feel for it. Um, and it's really hard, you know, with the rules to that slightly constrains things a little bit of like, well, I want there still to be some puzzles and things that people can figure out over, you know, three or four or five or 10 plays that they're not going to, it's not super simple or straightforward from the get go, you know, where they're just going to say, oh, this is a strategy this is what you do. So I think it's a, it's a fine line to walk, you know, of making things, things approachable, but not too just like simple or straightforward necessarily um and i think what we've been talking about is the theme is really key here like that's something that's very very important for this process because games are abstract systems so we're creating this like this makes sense because or this does this and this and it doesn't you know if we don't put a theme on it then it's just you know a math equation or some kind of like structure that we've built that like makes sense because we say it do but if say it does but if we can assign some um some tie into something that people know about, whether that's real world science or a narrative that they've already familiar with or characters. So it feels like it makes sense. It'll be easier for them to remember. They'll, they'll latch onto it a little bit more and they'll be able to start ordering that abstract system uh, more clearly. Yeah, definitely. All right. Changing gears just a little bit. So in all three games we've been talking about, you're using three very different systems as far as March of the Ants uses cards, Tidal Blades uses dice Wonderland's War uses poker chips and kind of a bag building thing. Tell me about that, because something we were talking about before we started recording was, you know, a lot of times designers will have a really good idea for a game or mechanism or system, and then they'll do that. And then the next game that they design is basically the same, very similar system. Maybe they added some things to it, took some things away, they tweaked it, but it's kind of the same system. But your games seem to be very, very different every time. And so tell me about that. Tell me some of the pros and cons as far as using cards versus dice versus chips for these big thematic games. Just kind of tell me about that whole aspect. Yeah, I think it, it, it is interesting that we, we talked about that a little bit. And it's I'm not exactly sure why I you know gravitate to some very different sort of components and mechanics in that way. But I've sort of just been inspired um, to to incorporate those things into into the games and partly it's just playing other games i get a lot of inspiration from playing games that are out there and existing games and you know be like oh i'm really excited about that i want to see how that structure works and you know and even i've been designing you know games for six or seven years now i'm still considered myself a pretty new designer and still figuring things out and so partly it's you know that that sense of exploration is like oh what do what do what is working with dice do how does that feel you know like what am i going to learn um while i'm working you know with dice and like 
going into title blades i was like oh dice they do this and this and this and then like as the game design developed it was like oh okay here's some awesome cool things you can do with dice here's some challenges that occur with custom dice and you know that i didn't necessarily foresee that it was like oh custom dice if they all have different faces then players tracking what's on the different faces is you know how many different dice can we have probably not more than you know four or five before it starts becoming um this you know a little overwhelming to be like oh wait i'm gonna roll this dice or that dice or making those choices so so i think part of it's just the the ex- looking for you know trying to push myself as a designer to to work with new different structures um and part of it's just yeah that inspiration uh from different games as far as like the experience of working with them i think march of the ants starting with cards was a really good idea because i you know came from playing a lot of magic cards when i was younger and just card games are very prevalent you know they're one of the most common um at least back you know five years ago there's been a lot of a big resurgence of dice and different different components but cards are kind of an elemental fu- fundamental um component of games so starting with that was nice because i knew a lot of things about cards and knew some structures and like how they worked and then Dice, working with dice was a cool, you know, and dice and sort of a press your luck thing of like being able to re-roll dice and what dice you're keeping and sort of balancing the amount of luck you have with being able to mitigate that, but still having it be tense was kind of a good prelude to Wonderland's War where you're bag building. So there's still some like uncertainty about what you're pulling out of your bag and trying to manage like, oh, we want that to be, you know, players to have autonomy about what they're pulling out, but we also don't want it to be overwhelming where it's like oh i got three bad pulls in a row so i'm just crushed so how how to build in those systems so i think with each of them there's similarities and differences that you know i'm definitely things things i learned in march of the ants i was able to take into title blades and then from title blades take those things into um wonderland's war with the even with the different components and that's sort of a, a fun puzzle to solve as a designer is to be like oh well how does this work with dice as opposed to cards as opposed to chips and like what what and what can i do with these that is different from each other you know what what possibilities are open and then what sort of dangers are out there as well yeah absolutely and i think also thinking through what can you do with these things thematically you know, as far as like what kind of makes sense with dice versus chips versus versus cards is also another really cool thing to kind of process through Definitely, definitely. And it's been, it's been, it's been cool. And I, I've definitely enjoyed that part of the puzzle. And sometimes I'm like, oh, I wish I was, I wish this was a deck of cards because I know how that works. But then it's, it's fun to be like, let's, you know, push the envelope and see what's possible with these things. Yeah. Now switching gears a little bit. So a lot of times these games have rounds and then have phases that make up each round. I know March Ants does this very well and has different you know phases that you go through over the course of four rounds over the course of the game. So tell me about kind of the process for coming up with that. You know, and how do you how do you find the sweet spot of the number of rounds, the number of phases, so it's not overwhelming and so the game doesn't last too long, things like that. Tell me about your design process as far as the kind of the timing of the game and the way it plays out. Yeah, that's um, something that I think I've gotten a little bit better with as it as I've gotten I've, I've gotten more experience uh, designing games. Like as I stated earlier, March Land started with I think nine rounds when I first started, and it ended up getting down to four. And so it was like question of like, okay, where you know I think 
you know, it's partly those those uh, objectives or goals, design goals, setting them out at the beginning of like, oh, I want this to be approachable and I want to be able to play with, you know, any any level of gamer is like, well, that's probably going to preclude it from being over two hours in most cases, you know, and probably closer to an hour in, 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 in cases. So having that structure sort of gives you some information about like, oh, how many rounds should it be overall and what's the overall length of them? And then sometimes the game it's a question of like, well, if it is a round structure, how many rounds do you need to be able to um, really reap the rewards of your actions and see what happens? And so, you know, in Wonderland's War, we settled on three total rounds, each with two phases. And it was like, okay, the first round's obviously you're sort of building up. Second round, you have a little bit more established on the board and your your structure your your have that influences your choices a bit more and then the third round we you know at some points we were like oh should we just have it be two rounds but it felt you know you weren't getting that that climax and that sense of like accomplishment and really being able to use everything you'd built um and but then then the trade-off is like well when have you been doing what's in the game long enough and when have you seen what's happening and when is the state of the game not changing enough? So I think three rounds for Wonderland's War is perfect. If it went four rounds, it'd be like, okay, we're doing the same thing. We've seen what's happening. We, we've built our characters and built our factions, but there's not that much more, you know, there's more, you could, we could keep building, but then it, we all sort of blend back into like, you know, we're doing the same actions again. So with March of the Ants, when we were, uh, working on that we were like well we want we had we went back and forth between a four and five round game and we ended up including the long game in there for players who wanted to play a little you know extra round but we i feel like the sweet spot's really four like everybody's got their engine running you've got your ant colony built up you feel like there's a lot of like potential that you're going to see and that's that's going to happen but you don't you know like the, the engines don't overload or get too expansive or like Often, if you play, if you played a five round game in March of the Ants, the fifth round would end up taking like half an hour as opposed to the, you know, twenty minutes or fifteen minutes of the previous rounds, just because people have built so much up. So, um, so it just felt natural that we was like, well, I'd rather have players finish and be like, let's play that again right away, than finish and be like, okay, we made it through, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And so let's kind of talk about the point structure and how it all kind of fits together with these rounds, with these phases, because I think that's another thing that's difficult for new designers to figure out is how much do how many points do you get for each thing, you know, for objective uh, hidden objectives or accomplishing certain things, you know, for everybody or all the different things that are going on, especially title blades has a lot of different ways to score points. Your games in general have a lot of ways to score points. How do you design that part of the game? How do you balance it all out? How do you make it work? Yeah, definitely. You know, point scoring is really important. It's an interesting, fascinating part of game game design because it's, you know, you can sort of wait till later to de- define it, but you also really need to give players clear motivation about what they're what they should be doing and rewarding them for doing those actions that they're that they you know that you want them to do. They're that like the goal of the game is. So, um, when designing points, I usually will you know in the early stages, it's kind of, you know, just a guesstimate, you know, I'm a pretty, um, I'm less of a numbers oriented designer than other people. And I'm less sort of mathematical in that way. I've, I've got a decent level of ability to just be like, okay, I think this should be around two points and this should be about five points and giving it a basic structure that will work for a while. Um, 
And then, you know, usually I wait till the design is about, you know, halfway through or somewhere, some, some point in the design process. And it'll be like, okay, we really need to like nail these numbers down and get them to figure out. And I think you want to have some points uh, in sort of the definition early enough on that players have motivation. You're like, okay, cool. You're doing challenges. So that's the main thing you're doing in title blades. We want you to, those should be worth points, you know, but we can give them just a, okay, they're worth one point per symbol of difficulty that's on them. So the, you know, and that's a basic structure that we have. And then that'll work for most of the design process. And then, you know, 50 or 60 or 70% of the way through the design process, you know, usually it'll actually be my brother when we're co-designing. Um, we'll be like, okay, we need to just sit down and do some math on this and really, really number this out and figure out like, okay, what is the cost? You know, what does it cost a player to do this thing? You know, what's the difficulty of it? How much resources are required or how many turns, you know, if something takes two or three turns to accomplish versus something you can just do in one turn, then it's like, well, where's the balance of that? Um, and so I think figuring out at some point you want to try and figure out the sort of the math of your game and it's never perfect because we, you know, I don't think you really ever, you know, we're designing these new systems. And so some people design really very close to balanced games and I want my games to be balanced power wise, but they're never exact math. It's never like, well, this is worth one of these is worth one of these is worth one of these, but I can kind of abstract out to be like, well, it takes a turn in title blades to get a die. Sometimes you can get two dice in a turn. And then, you know, some things like fighting monsters will require you to lose those dice. So it's like, well, that should at least be worth a point based on how much, you know, a point or two points, because that's how many turns it takes to get that thing. So, so trying to run some, figure out some sort of mathematical structure that you can use um, that like, okay, what's the cost of players? How, how does that compare to other things, you know? Um, so it's, it often comes back to like, oh, these resources are available in this quantity and, um, and that's how many resources you need to accomplish this thing. So there's, there's some math that you sort of create, but I think it's better to wait until you're, you're a little farther in the design process to really try and hammer those numbers down. Yeah, for sure. Now, when you're playtesting these big games, what are you what are you looking for? Obviously, later you're looking for the the math to be a little more balanced and things like that. But what are you looking for in general, with, as far as like what you're trying to trying to do with the game, the overall experience? Like, what kind of notes are you taking during playtest to make sure the game is is moving in the direction you want it to? Um, you know, I take very copious notes. I usually write, you know two to five pages of notes per 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 play test um so i'm looking at kind of a bunch of things but the main things i'm looking for are um you know like players engagement like when players are sort of tuning out or if things are not making sense to them um and then also when things are really fun you know if players are like oh yeah this is awesome you know it's like well let's make more moments like that happen um, with the bigger games, it's there is like a lot of notes on, okay, when I'm explaining the rules or when we're going over things, what rules got forgotten or what rules felt really cumbersome to explain or, you know, often there'll be early on, there'll be some rules that are forgotten. And I'm like, well, if they're forgetting those rules, 
do I really care enough to remind them and, and have them play with those rules, you know, and usually I'll have them play. I'll tell them about it in that test, but in future tests, I might say, well, that rule doesn't seem that important and players are forgetting about it. So can I make that happen in a different way or adjust that rule? So it's, so it's more important. Um, I'm also, you know, keeping track of the length of the game too, and the length of, you know, each round and structure like that to make sure like, Oh, we, you know, the second round of battle took an hour. Okay, that's way more than the, we, the first round only took 20 minutes and that's more where we want. What contributed to the second round taking so long? You know, maybe players' bags have gotten way too many chips in them by that time or there's not enough of a threat or other things. So just sort of tracking, you know, the overall structure of the game and then what trying to figure out what's contributing to those differences. Um, so yeah, that's mostly... Mostly, you know, it's it's pretty wide ranging. I don't have a, a, a really tight structure. I'm excited. I got the uh, fail faster playtest journal, and I'm excited to use that on a new design to see how that's, you know, that gives you some specific things to note and really enforces a lot of cool things of like tracking time and players engagement and and things like that. So, I think I could get a little bit more scientific in my note keeping, but I generally just use a sort of scattershot approach of like I'm just going to take down everything I'm observing and then go back through and sort of check like, okay, this is a really important thing. Okay, this relates to this you know yeah gotcha all right so you don't only design big games you got a a smaller game a two-player card drafting game called canopy hitting kickstarter here pretty soon so tell me kind of the differences in designing these big games versus designing a a small you know two-player style game kind of the pros and cons on, on both sides yeah definitely um so yeah smaller games are 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 interesting and i've sort of you know after working on big games for for quite a while i've sort of started dipping my toes in, into some smaller games um partly because they're you know easier to design in some ways they're easier because you can play test them a lot quicker which is you know one of the main i'd say probably takes up you know 70 percent of my design time on games is doing play tests so if i'm play testing a game that takes an hour and a half or two hours like you can only get one of those in a day, you know, really like, or a couple times a week where, you know, a 20 minute, half an hour game, I can play two or three times in a row or get a variety of people to, you know, play with me. Um, so that's one of the benefits and sort of something I've been excited about with smaller games is just being able to, to work on, work on them a little bit quicker and have them come to fruition and, and have a structure a little bit more quickly. Um, some of the drawbacks I think are, um, or not drawbacks, but a a big difference is how much you can put into the game. You know, if it's a smaller game, that's just a deck of cards, then it's, you know, you're like, Oh, we, it'd be cool if we had these tokens or these things or had a track or did these things. But if you're limiting yourself with like the depth and complexity that you want, you also, can't solve problems by adding more things in you know or by like i think in a lot of big games people you know designers are able to sort of hide some balance things or hide some things that don't work exactly right by just having how much how much stuff is actually in the game you know and and that's something to sort of watch out for with bigger designs and something I've really strived to do is make sure everything makes sense and it all works. And it's not just like, oh, there's so many different scoring things. So it's hard to track if these are actually balanced or these actually equal out. But I kind of think of it like writing a children's book, you know, it's like, oh, it seems really easy. Children's books should be, you know, they're just pictures and a couple words on each page. But to write a really good one, you just have less you can work with. You can't just like be overly verbose or put, you know, 
you know, a ton of stuff in there, you need to really be concise and have a really focused design. So in that sense, that really appeals to me with, with uh, smaller designs too, is like, how can I solve this? The constraints are a lot tighter. You know, the design goals have to be like, well, it's going to play in half an hour. It's going to be just a deck of cards as opposed to like multiple components or bits. And how do I keep that in there and still achieve a level of sort of depth or interesting gameplay that I'd like to have? Um, and just the less the less components you have, the less you're able to or the a little bit tricky, it becomes more difficult to innovate in that space. Because if I'm, you know, oh, I'm mixing drafting and bag building and area control, it's like, oh, those are, you know, like three pretty big dynamic systems that I'm going to be innovating just by blending them together. And I'm not really worried about doing something that's overly repetitive or too similar to what other people are working on. But if I'm just working with one deck of cards and card drafting, then it's like, well, how do I make that stand out from the other just lots of card games that are card drafting. Yeah, for sure. But one thing you mentioned was it's, it's fun to start thinking about these different problems. You know, one thing I've been doing lately is designing a lot of solo games, which provides a whole different set of challenges. But one thing I love about it, I don't have to worry about downtime. I don't, there's also certain things I don't have to think about because it's a solo game, you know, and it's the same thing with, it's a two player game. I don't have to think, okay, well, you know, if this is a five player game, then turns need to take this amount of time. That way that fifth player is not just sitting there waiting half an hour before they get to go again. Well, with a two player game, it's back and forth. One player game, they're engaged the entire time because there's nobody else. Like there's a lot of really fun design challenges uh, that go kind of both ways, pros, pros and cons. And it's just fun to get into and, and do these different kinds of things. And so what are you looking ahead? What do you want to design? What are you, what are you thinking about looking towards the future? What are some mechanisms you'd like to work with themes you'd like to get into that kind of thing? Yeah. So a couple things that I've had in my, you know, in my brain for a while, and I've started a document that's probably got like 40 or 50 different ideas that, you know, I've gotten so busy in the last few years that I'm like, well, I can't start a new design right now. I'm like really excited about it, but I can't, can't start a new design just yet. Um, so I have a lot of things and a couple of them that I'm really excited about are, I've really been enjoying the, um, escape games. Um, and so I'm, I'm thinking about working on, you know, making some escape games, uh, like the unlock or exit games. Um, you know, and maybe doing like a two player only version of that, like you were saying, is sort of a way to change it up. So it's just two players and maybe you have incomplete information on each side. So you're trying to solve puzzles there. I've been working on a couple party games as well, just um, it, partly just have a different audience and different friends that I can play them with and more, you know, more people to play them with. And also I just like the, you know, the potential for player interaction in that zone. Like that's sort of my, my type, one of my touchstones in design is I, I really want there to be a lot of player interaction and, and, you know, engagement in that way. And that's why I like playing games. It, and so just party games give this huge level of, you know, player interaction and sort of ability to connect there. Um, another, you know, mechanism that I'm interested in is some like double-sided cards, like point salad sort of thing where there's some information on the back of the card and some on the front. And so just what you can do with that, that style of thing that's still like, oh, there's a deck of cards, but now what does it mean when there's different information on each side of the card? Um, so yeah, so those are a couple of the things I'm interested in. I'm also, you know, narrative is something I'm really interested in so sort of thinking about theme and narrative and how to bring that in in even a bigger way is um is something i've been uh been curious about awesome well tim this has been great man you have any kind of closing thoughts for somebody maybe they're sitting there listening to this wanting to design a big game you know maybe they're working through one right now what would you tell them 
Uh, I would say, you know, just keep at it. And, you know, I think really like we've talked about sort of to re rehash is like come back to the theme and figure out how that ties in. I think especially with big games, you know, having a theme that you're excited about and care about and that is feels alive in the game is really important to make it uh, approachable and to sort of guide you through the design process. Um, so that's that's sort of, you know, I think what I'd go out on with this interview is just, you know, because we've talked about it a lot is just, yeah, like how do you bring that theme in? How do you keep it present? And how do you, you know, I think it'll make it more exciting to design and more exciting for your players to play. For sure. Well, we've been talking about it some. Wonderland's War, it's on Kickstarter right now. Give me like the elevator pitch for that one then tell people the dates and all that. Yeah, so Wonderland's War, it is a bag-building, drafting, area control game set in Wonderland. The uh, Each player takes on one of the a hero from Wonderland, the Red Queen or Alice or the Mad Hatter, and you're leading a faction, assembling your, your armies of different uh, characters of card soldiers and flamingos and different fun chips that you're building with, and then you're, you're battling it out in the different regions of Wonderland, so like the Meadow of Living Ta- Flowers or Wit's End, Pool of Tears, and so it's very thematic. You're, you get to play as one of the characters, and um, battles are really engaging because you're drawing out of the you're drawing your ba- chips out of bags and sort of pushing your luck in battle. So uh, that's on Kickstarter February 11th through, I believe, March seventh uh, or eighth. Um, and yeah, check it out. We'd love to uh, love your support. Well, Tim, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Good luck with Wonderland's War on Kickstarter and everything else you got going on right now. Awesome. Thank you, Gabe. It was a pleasure being here. Take care. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?